Hello, and welcome to the Evolve.ag podcast. This is Wendy, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Sam from Heron Farms. Sam, would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Wendy. It's nice to be here. My name is Sam Norton. I am from South Carolina and the founder of Heron Farms and about to finish up graduate school in Charleston. Oh, that's fantastic. What is Heron Farms working on? We are growing food with salt water, and we're also remediating salt marshes in a couple of areas around the world. We've grown plants with seawater for food over the last few years and kind of migrated towards the indoor model for food. Although it's more expensive, you can do it year-round, use less space, and control the salinity better. Wow, that's really cool. And what are you studying in grad school? The program is Master of Science in Environmental and Sustainability Studies. I'm writing a thesis which has two publishable units. The first one is on an experiment we did inside of a shipping container that was originally designed to grow lettuce, but we grew salicornia, this plant that is marketed under the name sea beans. And we basically were looking at the effects between the amount of light, the, the PPFD that you give the plants, spectral quality, so the, the color of the light you give the plants, and then the density per plant or per plug. So one of these shipping containers mm -hmm. designed to grow lettuce usually has six inch or three inch spacing. And each one of those plugs typically has one lettuce plant, but for the plant we grow, it's morphologically plastic, and it was it was unclear in the beginning on, on how many seeds we should do per plug, so that was part of the experiment as well. And then the second part of the thesis is, it's called a conjoint analysis. It's, it's used in market research and economics to try to pinpoint what attributes a person will pay more on a given product, and so we're looking at people's willingness to pay for sunglasses and, and other products go up if that company promises to replant salt marsh. I'm kind of curious about the outcome of that. We know from companies popping up all over like Ecosia and now Patagonia is doing this with beer that the willingness to pay rises when you agree to replant a tree. And so we're trying it, basically asking the same question, but with salt marsh. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Basically, everything you're studying, you're applying then to your company at Heron Farms kind of has ended up that way. And it's a chicken or an egg thing because Heron Farms was started at the same time as starting grad school. So it's always, they've helped each other and it's, it's kind of unclear which one is benefiting more. Or I, I think it's it's good to have a foot in both the business community and, and in research. Although it's like, you can do them both poorly, which I probably do most of the time, but they really help each other in, in certain ways. I can understand that, but I'm sure you're not doing them poorly. What inspired you to start Heron Farms? I grew up on the coast of South Carolina and went in the ocean all the time, still do. And I learned in 2016 or 17 about a project Boeing was doing over in the UAE growing the salt-tolerant plant called Salicornia for biofuels using nothing but seawater. I thought it was fascinating. And I realized that it was the same plant I had eaten growing up, knew it under a name, sea pickle. There's like environmental camps around the Charleston area. And, you know, you go kayaking and the instructors will say, hey, you can eat this little plant out of the marsh. And so anyways, I thought it was fascinating that the same plant that I had grown up eating was now causing a lot of academic interest and enterprise interest for its ability to basically be an agricultural candidate using nothing but seawater. And so I got to meet some of the people on the Boeing team and wrote my capstone on seawater agriculture and then went to grad school to basically learn how to grow it. This plant, salicornia, which is kind of like the, uh, the wheat or maybe the corn or something of seawater agriculture. It's the most popular right now in terms of it. it's the closest to being domesticated. It's the most widely known of all the salt tolerant plants called halophytes. And it's colloquially called sea beans. Oh gosh, there's all sorts of strange 
monikers for it. Whole Foods calls it sea beans. And so we ended up going with that name, although there are other sea pickle, sea asparagus, samp. The the most common name, if you use Google Trends, is Sampfire, S-A-M-P-H-I-R-E. And that's because that's the name for it in Northern Europe. In the Latin-speaking countries of Europe, it's called Salicornia. And then, I mean, I've, I've had people call them Salty Fingers. There's just all sorts of strange names for them. That's a good name too, Salty Fingers. Yeah. Can you describe them? Like, what do they look like? What do they taste like? They're technically a succulent annual halophyte. And they're what's called an obligate halophyte. So they actually will reach their highest biomass if you give them salt up to about 10 parts per thousand. So not quite full strength seawater, but saline water. They are very strange looking because they're leafless. And so they, what we think happened is that they de-evolved leaves to reduce evapotranspiration because the salt marsh is very harsh. It's this environment that this plant evolved in is the saltiest environment on the planet. It's, it's basically where a salt marsh gets disturbed and then the water at high tide evaporates and leaves behind salt. And this process repeats itself so often, so every day, twice a day, and it leaves a very salty patch of land called a tidal flat or a salt pan. And these plants go in and colonize these areas. They end up decreasing the salt content of the soil and less salt tolerant, usually perennial grasses will come in, other marsh grasses will come in. And so they're kind of like the salt marsh band-aid. And so they don't have leaves. They look almost like a translucent asparagus, and they taste like a like spinach that's been seasoned with salt. I, I guess that's the closest. You know, they, they're 98% water. They're a succulent, and so they just kind of taste like biting into a bit of vegetal seawater. I think that's the best way to describe it. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. What kind of nutrients do they provide? They provide vitamin A, C, folic acid, things that you'll find in, in many plants. But halophytes are interesting because they need to basically produce more of certain acids in order to handle the salt. And so they have a higher vitamin A content than you would find in a normal plant. They also have more sodium chloride than you would find in a normal plant. And this also makes them inedible in many parts of the world because they are excellent at sequestering heavy metals and pollutants from marshes. And so you really probably don't want to eat them in an urban marsh. But this is why they're a leading candidate for marsh restorations, because they can pull heavy metals out of the soil. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And then the ones that you guys are growing, you're growing inside in a controlled environment, so they're perfectly safe to eat. Yeah, that's right. We use technique. It's called an ozone machine. It basically pumps the water full of the highest amount of soluble oxygen that's possible in the temperature of that water. And that that O3 gas is not the extra oxygen molecule does not want to be there. And so it goes around binding to plant cell walls of broken down plant matter or bacterial cell walls or what have you. And so that's how we sterilize the water. And then sourcing the seawater of course, it is important. And luckily, we live within, in Charleston, we've got the Francis Marion National Forest to our north and the Ace Basin to our south. So we don't have to go far to get pristine seawater. That makes it easy. Close proximity to your resources. Yes. And the, the best quality we can get is when we pay fishermen that go offshore to bring us back seawater. Our new facility is a little bit too large to do that every week, but that's always the highest quality. Oh, that's really interesting. What kind of recipes would you use sea beans in? The most common for chefs is to use it on a seafood dish like a crudo or with raw fish. We've seen it as a as a replacement for salt 
Sometimes people put them on their eggs in the morning instead of salt. We've had a couple chefs bake them into bread instead of adding salt, which was pretty interesting. And then our one of our favorite uses recently has been a company called Dahlia Sophia, who, who uses our byproduct, our inedible stems of the plant, and uses them as the salt uh, addition in their kombucha. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Really innovative idea. And it's delicious. They, they have a great product. And we replant one square foot of marsh every time they sell a can, which is part of that willingness to pay. We, they were our first collaboration in that area. And of their eight flavors, the one that we've collaborated on is now the, the best-selling SKU. And, and hopefully it has to do with the, it's hard to tease apart, but it hopefully has to do with the promise to replant marsh. Because what we're trying to show on the remediation side is that it doesn't have to be a nonprofit. If we can increase the sales of a given SKU for a given company, by replanting marsh for them, then it, we brought it into the marketplace and increased willingness to pay instead of solicited contributions, basically. That's really cool. Let's talk a little bit then about the marshland restoration projects you're working on. Why did you choose to do marshland restoration and what are the ecological benefits of restoring the marshland? Well, it's a natural fit. It's close to home. I grew up on the marsh. It's a very productive ecosystem and it's one of the last parts of the ecosystem in the southeast of the United States that are relatively untouched in, in many places. The salt marshes were bad for agriculture and so they, they were kind of left alone in a sense. So we have miles and miles of Spartina and in the southeast of the U.S. But studying halophytes, which evolved in the marshes, it's a natural fit. We have a little bit of an issue in Charleston and Savannah and Norfolk and some of these other port cities where we, we deepen the harbor every decade or so. And in order to deepen the harbor, you got to put the sediment that you've removed from the bottom of the river somewhere. A portion of this sediment ends up in marshes and what are called confined disposal facilities. The Army Corps used to just dump the dredge material straight onto the marsh. And I think it was the Clean Water Act in the 60s that required them to confine it. But Basically, we have these cells of confined mud, about 3,300 acres of it in Charleston. Savannah's, I think, the only port that has more of it in the United States. These are a bit of an issue because they tend to be colonized by invasive species and create a bit of an issue in the system. And so remediating those spaces is more important to us right now than, say, remediating a intertidal marsh that was dug up by maybe someone building a dock or something like that. These spaces are, they have a lot of scale per, per county and we're trying to create a way of replanting them with native plants that, that scales also because the Army Corps had done some research recently in an initiative called Engineering with Nature to remediate these with native plants, but it just turned out the cost of growing the plant in the nursery and taking care of it and then transporting it appropriately to one of these sites, which you typically can't drive to, and then getting it into the soil at the right time and ensuring its survival over the first couple of weeks. It just turned out to be a pretty expensive ordeal. And so we built, well, we, we, we took a DJI Cameron drone and our friend Chris Ritter, he, he worked at NOAA, put a hopper on the bottom and a little servo motor, and we've created a little seed-dropping drone, and we'll be able to test out on some of these confined disposal facilities. But no, it's just, it's a natural, the plants that we grow for food at Heron Farms are all halophytes, and halophytes are essentially marsh plants, although you can find them in like alkaline flats like Salt Lake by Utah, but uh, they generally have evolved in salt marshes. So that must feel good to be able to work on something that really helps your hometown out too. Well, it's fun. I selfishly love all the products of the marsh, not just to look at, but the shrimp to eat or the, I mean, the, if you've ever eaten fish out of the Atlantic, it, it probably either spawned in the salt marsh or ate something that spawned in the salt marsh. And if you follow that food chain all the way down, you'll basically get to Spartina. That is the dominant marsh grass that's broken down and it's kind of the base of the food chain. And so anytime we can help the salt marsh, we're, we're helping those things higher up the food chain. And that's selfishly good for me because I would love to, to have an ocean 
ocean that has edible and sustainable fisheries. Absolutely. I love the full supply chain or I guess cycle. Let's talk a little bit about your farm. Are I know you're growing indoors. Are you growing vertically using vertical farm methods? It's vertical. It's all indoors. We've done the shipping container model and this Charleston farm is now a warehouse model. It's a bit easier for folks to work in. We, we had, I know I felt the same way and many of the employees felt the same way that working in the shipping container farms was a bit cramped and kind of claustrophobic, but they have some upside. But yeah, we, we have six levels of plants inside of a grow room that's about a thousand square feet and it's a pilot essentially to test out the methods and more importantly the market response but Charleston of course is not the in the southeast generally is not a not a big market and so we hope to springboard off this and in the spring open up another farm but yeah it's vertical six levels you could go higher if you wanted to I suppose but we're working within the framework of a warehouse that was converted. We built the grow room starting in August. It's basically like most warehouse farms. It's it's basically a box inside a box. It's an insulated box inside of a warehouse that all the environmental parameters are controlled, or at least you hope to control them, but Mother Nature always wins a bit. <laughs> and how much yield will you get from that setup? You can get a few thousand ounces. Our highest selling SKU is this one ounce package. So you can get a few hundred pounds a week or thousands of these one ounce packages. To date, the warehouse farm is not quite as productive as the shipping container farm in terms of the yield, but the shipping container farm we inherited had been, all the kinks had been worked out before we moved in. And so we're, we've been starting to remove the kinks from the indoor farm as we go. But, but yeah, you can produce quite a few little one ounce packages and, and a few hundred pounds a week if your production management is, is sound and you make sure that you're always kind of thinking two plant cycles or three plant cycles ahead so that there's never a gap week. That makes sense. And are you using hydroponics or aeroponics? Yep, this is all hydroponics. We've done uh, deep water culture, nutrient film technique, and now we're using ebb and flow. All three have worked fine and they, they have trade-offs and a deep water culture is the is when you basically just have roots suspended in, in water and it, it's much more of a reliable system just in the term in terms of any if anything were to go wrong, your plants would still be suspended in water. Nutrient film technique is is great because it stacks really well and ebb and flow was the design we went with for or the technique we went with for this warehouse, but we're not really beholden to any of the three. They're all they're all good for their own reasons depending on the location of the farm. What technology do you use? Is it stuff that you've developed in house or are you relying on stuff that's already been out there in the market? We rely for most of the environmental monitoring on a company in town that started back in 2003 to help dose for the beverage industry, mostly in the brewery industry, to help maintain pH and dosing inside of the inside of beer production. But they in 2015 they teamed up with some this shipping container farm company and a leafy greens hydroponic grower. And so their software is really developed into all-in-one monitoring and sales and tracking software for hydroponic growers. And so we use their technology for many of the basics. And then the the seawater monitoring and manipulation is our in-house. Very cool. How many people work at the farm? There's eight of us at the Charleston location. The Charleston location is at half capacity. It's about 60% capacity in terms of the number of lights in the grow room. And so we're about to go to full capacity. So I think we'll probably bump up to about 10 or 11 of us. But yeah, there's there's eight at the moment, including me. Cool. And have you thought about using any type of robotics? Yes. One of one of the folks on the team came from a company called Plenty out in San Francisco, where he's familiar using robotics in different parts of the 
the growing process. We haven't identified yet which of the manual labor tasks we'd like to automate first. It'll probably be the seeding or the labeling of the packages, but we're really not trying to be a robotics company at the moment. And I want to ask you about energy usage, because I know that's always a big topic of discussion when it comes to vertical farms. Mm. How are you factoring in energy efficiency and what kind of light are you using? Yeah, it's rightfully, and along with the use of plastic in, in so many parts of the process, it's rightfully a, a big downside of indoor ag. We use a light developed for the cannabis industry made by a company in Texas called Fluent because of its energy efficiency. And the, the model we use has a disaggregated driver. And so the driver is typically the hot part of the light. And most of the earlier LEDs had the driver built into the light. And so it would the light below one level of plants would, would heat up the plants above it. And so I love Fluence's design on one of their models because it disaggregates the driver and allows us to put it on the towards the roof of the grow room and, and eventually actually remove it from the grow room and put it on the outside of the grow room to lessen the heat load. But so energy usage, this is more of a back of a napkin type of calculation, but I, I've calculated that we produce a few pounds of carbon dioxide for every one pound of plant material grown, which is a horrendous ratio and is a big red flag for the indoor ag industry in general, which is why we're out there replanting salt marsh, which one cubic foot of salt marsh will sequester several pounds of carbon over the course of just a few years and thankfully kind of scale on its own if it's set up properly. It will, you won't have to keep replanting. It will, it will replant itself every year. But so the energy usage is not sustainable. However, and this is what, you know, someone from the indoor ag industry would tell you, and it's mostly true, is that the LED efficiency is going up every year. The efficacy, the output per joule of energy is getting better each year. And we're not there yet, but there will be a time in the next 20 years when solar panels are more than 30% efficient and they'll be able to sustain an indoor farm. So right now, if you're a company like Plenty, you can just say it's sustainable by sourcing, by having the option on the grid to source from wind or solar. We don't have the option in South Carolina. And so we're, we're just straight off the grid. But it's definitely a big issue, and it's all about where the energy is originated and the losses of energy are down the pipeline once you get to the plant. So it's a big issue. It's going to continue to be a big issue, but we're seeing some improvement because of efficacy and really not only from lights, but also importantly from HVAC. That's another big driver of your energy bill is keeping these indoor grow rooms cool. That makes sense. And it's fantastic that you all are giving back by planting marshland as well. When we did that first calculation, it's a lot of carbon dioxide output to produce one pound. And it's not just about, you could go down the rabbit hole as far as you want. We really stopped at the production process. So we calculated the energy usage. But if you wanted to keep going, you could calculate the emissions from building the lights or the emissions from transporting the plugs to our farm or from getting the seeds to our farm or, you know, what have you. You can really go down that rabbit hole as far as you want. But we stopped at production and, and did the calculations based on that. That makes sense. Are you all planning on diversifying your offerings and planting anything else besides sea beans in the future? Yeah. In your farm? Def yes, definitely. We just don't need to quite yet. It's kind of when we're able to meet the demand for the first product, we'll start tinkering with the next. But right now we still have plenty of work to do, dialing in the processes for growing sea beans. And, and this is not just with us, but with other companies doing seawater agriculture, you're going to see the most diversification in SKUs in non-food sectors. So you'll see folks growing other kinds of halophytes that they can grow outdoors where, where their cost of goods sold is much lower for fiber or pharmaceuticals or biofuels or what have you. That makes sense. I'll mention we're interested a bit in, this is not a, a true halophyte. 
phytophyte. It's it's just a salt tolerant plant, so you can't give it full strength seawater or anything close to it. But there is a native plant to the to North America that's in Elix genus, and it's a it's a holly, and it's a it's the only caffeinated plant that's native to North America. And we're pretty interested in being able to cultivate that plant. Oh wow, that would be really for cool. Caffeine. I was in Hawaii earlier this, or I guess last year. And I was talking to someone who owned a vertical farm out there and they were growing ice plant and they said that had a very salty taste to it. So I'm curious, is that something that is in that same family? Because it kind of sounds like it's being used for the same use. Like they would put it on top of sushi because it had like a more salty flavor to it. And chefs were really excited about it because it was a, a plant so they wouldn't have to use salt. Yeah, it's it's another one that we're seeing other folks growing with seawater growing in Europe and places like that. It's an interesting candidate for this type of agriculture, but we don't have any real interest quite yet. It, it's probably delicious. I haven't tried it. So for you so far, what's been the toughest part? Oh, well, I would I would give you a different answer a few weeks ago. When we initially built this, this grow room at this scale, we thought that the marketplace would be the biggest issue and that we would have to lump our team on the sales side, but that turned out to, to be wrong. So the biggest issue is probably trying to tame nature in a way that fits with traditional manufacturing in a way. I mean, this is like rule number one of how not to farm is to walk out to your farm and say, I demand you do this. And, you know, you're, you're always trying to kind of bring nature into a headlock. And this, this, <laughs> It just doesn't work. So the biggest challenge is, is trying to take a wild, what's basically still a wild plant and say, I want you to produce the same thing every single time and on time. That's probably the biggest challenge. So it's really a production management challenge. We don't get to, you know, if we were if we were producing, a, manufacturing a widget or writing software, we could, we could make a new design. We could learn from the current design and reiterate overnight or over the course of a few weeks. But with manufacturing a plant or growing a plant, you, you need to wait until the life cycle of the plant is done to have learned anything from the experiment. And if you messed up anything along your experiment, well, the variants across plant are already large enough to have not given you very clear insight into into whether you're tracking the right variables. But all I'm saying is the timeline to make a change to the system is extended by several weeks. And so it just makes it difficult to modify the system. You kind of have to go one step at a time, modify one thing on each plant cycle and, and go from there. That makes sense. What has been the most surprising part for you? I would say probably the market developing as fast as it did. Several people on the team, they would tell you a different answer. They always said, we're not going to have any trouble selling these things. And and I, I wanted to agree with them because we had we have a delicious and healthy product. It's not like we're trying to sell the fidget spinner or whatever that thing was. I, I just was nervous about the market prices and the market volumes. And so that's been the nicest surprise is to have some larger companies or some, some large accounts come online that are requiring us to scale up. That's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So we were going to have our first harvest in mid-April of last year. So by mid-March, we realized, oh my God, all the restaurants that said they were going to carry our product are going to have to close, some of them permanently. So we pivoted within about two weeks of our first harvest. And instead of packaging everything in these one-pound skews for restaurants, we in a one-pound skew, excuse me, we turned to one-ounce packages and then at the time, we didn't have the certifications necessary for large grocers, so we started calling CSAs and seafood markets and, and small grocers. And it turned out that those markets wanted the volume that was enough for us to sustain. When we opened up this new facility, we took the route of let's team up with the best chefs we can, but let's not treat that as the market we want to pursue because they're hurting so much in the pandemic. Let's find out what markets are doing well in the pandemic. And that turns out to be these produce delivery markets. An example would be they're so much more popular in, the, in, in other bigger cities, but let's see. 
Imperfect Foods is an example. They take mm-hmm. blemished produce and deliver it to your house. They've got a pretty big fulfillment center in Baltimore. These, this produce box delivery market turned out to be our best so far as we work on the grocery side. The grocers just take quite a while. And so we're seeing the food service sector pick up a bit. Restaurants mm-hmm. are coming back online, but the produce delivery is really where we're focusing our marketing. That's great. It's an industry-wide trend, I think. I, I definitely know the ones here in Miami went that same route, either direct to consumer or working with other companies that were also delivering food. The pandemic just shut down so many different avenues for getting goods or organic goods from specific farms and stuff like that. In the future, do you think you'll be working more closely with grocery stores once you can get in? That's everybody's hope. You know, you want to have your own SKU at the grocery store and it sells every week. Places like Whole Foods and health conscious or, or local product conscious grocery channels are interesting. We have uh, Whole Foods coming to visit, so we'll see how that goes. That'd be a big one for us. But again, you kind of have to go in steps for folks because most chefs have already heard of this product, but most of normal folks haven't. And so you kind of have to follow this path when you enter a new market where, where chefs start to use it, put it on their menu, people start to learn about it, and then you make it available in small grocery and then you kind of work your way up. And so I think we'll be ready for big grocery this spring. And so hopefully it sells. Great. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you introduce sea beans to a new audience? I would imagine a lot of people who don't live near the coast have never heard of these before. Well, that's where we're, I would try to take credit for it. But basically, if you follow the avocados model, you can, you can do pretty well. I mean, I'm going to botch this, but the avocado wasn't available in America or wasn't known in America in the 50s and 60s. And the California Growers Association really did an amazing job of building up an awareness around that fruit. And so what they found was that if you sold it to the best chefs in LA or San Francisco or where have you, they would teach the consumer kind of when it was ripe, how to eat it, what to pair it with sort of thing. And it just grew and grew. And I think two years ago, it was the first fruit to ever have its own Super Bowl commercial. I mean, the avocado industry is like a $10 billion industry. It also had plenty of help from Central American immigration into the U.S., where avocados originated and where they had been consumed more frequently. So it wasn't just that model of go to chefs first and then build out the rest of the chain, but that's kind of my model in the plant world. Many of these things you're eating, just look up, why, why in the world are we eating so many bananas? Like, what? how did that start? And a lot of it goes back to a guy named David Fairchild who went around and he brought the first watermelons back to the U.S. So anyways, every plant that you're eating has some origin story where, it, where the market has to be built out for it. And so we're not doing anything different. We're kind of following the path of many of those plants. Got it. Follow the avocado. I've never heard that phrase and I love it. I think it needs to be a hashtag. <laughs> it's, it's, it should be. It's a great model and it's a delicious plant and it's become almost this cultural meme. I think I read a statistic last year that was like on any given day, 200,000 or, or 2 million, something like that, pictures of avocados on toast go up on the internet. It's just, it's crazy. Oh my gosh. I could see that. I'm one of those folks. I love avocados. I've I've got one more unnecessary avocado thing. Yes, please. So this is just an example of allowing yourself to to pivot your produce name. But the avocado's original name, the Aztec name is Ahuacate, and it means tree testicle. And that name didn't get a lot of traction in California, so they renamed it the alligator pear, which it was its name for a little while. And then they went back and named it kind of like a derivative of Ahuacate by calling it avocado. And that seemed to stick. So anyways, you got to be creative with your your marketing and the avocado has done a great job. That's a wonderful anecdote. 
(laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, how did the local community in Charleston react to your farm? I would say it's mostly supportive. We have a good balance of half the people we interact with saying, this is amazing technology. You guys are going to help change the world. And the other half being like, why the, who cares about, we have plenty of fresh water. Who cares? There's no need for this yet. We stay humbled by having both of those reactions in the community. And then it's interesting in Charleston because many people are familiar with the perennial ancestor of this plant that they've seen in the marsh. And so we, we oftentimes have people that have already eaten this in the in Charleston and Savannah and Wilmington and places like that. So it's been a mostly favorable reaction. I think people mostly are favorable because we all are aware that the seawater that's starting to inundate our lives around here is it, it isn't political, it's just kind of there and it doesn't care about the politics and it just we have a high tide with a full moon and the whole hospital district is flooded or your front yard is flooded or you may not do the math behind it, but you know that your home is flooding more often, your flood insurance rates are going up, and all of those things are kind of leading to a bit of anxiety on the part of Charlestonians and people all around the world that live on the coast. And this company is not going to go the volume issue, but we are showing that you don't have to look at all the incoming seawater as just a problem, but you can think of it as a resource like folks in the Netherlands do. I think that's generally why we have favorable reactions in Charleston. That's an excellent way of putting it, for sure. So how can our listeners get sea beans from your farm? We can send them directly to you. We do a little bit of that online, but the cost to ship is is prohibitive for many customers. Unfortunately, right now, the only way to get them would be to be in the Southeast. And we have a list of all the retailers and restaurants that carry the product on our website. We are about to expand into the D.C. area through a produce delivery company up there. We are just breaking out of the southeastern U.S. market and entering the northeastern market. So those are going to be the only places in the, in the near term that will, our product will be able to go unless you help us with the shipping. We'll send it right to you. Right on. I guess everyone should definitely take a trip to Charleston. Oh, it's beautiful. What do you think of the vertical farm industry? How do you think that's going to change and shift in the next couple of years? I don't know how much it's going to change in the next couple of years. Anyone telling you that we're going to be growing wheat indoors or corn indoors in some old skyscraper in Detroit is they probably aren't following this industry closely enough. But in terms of leafy greens, there's a guy online named Bruce Bugby and and he'll lay this out much better. But basically there are some key indicators of whether a plant is capable of being grown in an indoor environment economically. And those are basically its harvest index. So how much of the plant are you really using? Sea beans, for example, Salicornia has a 95% harvest index. Most of the plant that's grown is edible. Tomatoes have about a 30% harvest index. Corn has a 2%. So that's one factor. Another one is market price. Another one is cost per kilowatt in your in your area. So in terms of the next three years, I think we're going to see vertical farming continue to grow in the leafy greens area, the cannabis area. I think over the next 10 to 20 years, we'll see it become more of a driver in the production of different pharmaceuticals that are derived from plants. In terms of the next crops to be candidates, we'll probably see strawberries. A lot of crops are doing the hybrid model where they're using solar energy but they have supplemental light to control the photo period and to control flowering and that sort of thing. But in the long term, we really don't want to get into a situation where indoor ag is what feeds the planet. It just, the math doesn't work out in terms of energy usage. It really, hopefully, will be more of a bridge over the next century or two to get us back to using the land appropriately and to using the sun's energy. But right now, we've put ourselves in a position where over the next century, we really have to figure out ideas immediately. They're going to help feed all 10 billion of us or we're just not 
not going to do it outdoors. So, But you don't want your solution to create more of the same problem. And so if the energy problem can't be worked out, then we're just indoor farms are going to be more necessary as more cropland becomes salinized or becomes unarable. All I'm saying is I don't want indoor farms to exist beyond a few plants in the next few centuries. They are going to have to exist in the 21st century and probably 22nd, but it's just the amount of plastic and energy necessary is concerning. I hear you for sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? So last year I went went to Bangladesh with a friend from Seawater Solutions. We had this idea that if, if you planted halophytes on the rice paddies that had become too salinized from sea level rise, that you could turn those back into productive agricultural spaces. And that turns out to have worked in three of the four pilots we did. So I think you'll see us probably expand on that this year and going forward, because the main barriers to doing seawater agriculture at scale have been land use constraints. You know, people live on the coast, so it's hard to do agriculture where they're living. And the other one is regulation of salinity. So if you just pump seawater onto a desert every year, it'll get more salinized. Even these halophytes can't handle. And so what we found with rice paddies is that rice paddies kind of solve those issues because the land is already dedicated to agriculture and the monsoon season flushes the sodium chloride out of the soil. So I think we'll see in the outdoor space, seawater ag probably grow the fastest in former rice paddies. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, I look forward to learning more about it and keeping an eye out for this in the future, for sure. Sam, thank you so much for your honest insights and sharing with us what you're doing with Heron Farms. I hope everybody listening to this checks out their website, follows them on social media, and keeps an eye on what y'all are doing. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Thank you. That was fun.